Well, it is uh, getting into that Christmas season, and we've been singing some of those uh, Christmas hymns and Christmas carols. So let's open up to the book of Revelation, okay? Uh, I'm serious. Revelation 19 uh, is where we're going to be. And the truth of the matter is, is that what we read about in Revelation concerning the second coming of Christ would never be possible without the first coming of Christ. And there is definitely connection and they're definitely tied together. But we have been uh, looking, uh, we've been through this series on the, the hungry soul. And I'm wrapping that up this morning. And uh, after that, the next few weeks, we'll be dealing uh, more with that, that first coming and what was provided for us there. Uh, but uh, if you are a believer and you know Jesus, then there ought to be a hungry soul within you that you hunger for all that Christ has for you. You hunger to experience the promises of God's Word, that, that you also hunger for that day when you'll stand before Him face to face. Uh, you have a hungry soul for these things. And I tell you, Revelation talks about a time when the hungry soul will hunger no more. Not because uh, we've just gotten over it and, and have gotten to the point that we're not hungry, but because... The day is coming when we will be completely satisfied. And that's what Revelation 19 is talking about. You know, we've, uh, the last few weeks of this series, we've been talking about the different tables. I want to talk about that table, that supper table, uh, when we are gathered together with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things, John's writing these things down, he says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So this is a heavenly scene that's going on, not here on earth, but it's in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. He's talking about things that happened during the tribulation, okay? Verse 3 says, Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. So they're rejoicing over the just judgment of God. Verse 4 says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down, and worship God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God, omnipotent, all-powerful is what omnipotent means. He has all power. There is no power that, that he does not have, and he never runs out of power. He is the Lord God, omnipotent, and he reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. That's what we've been doing this morning. Give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife, by the way, his wife is the church. It's us. His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. In other words, it's going to happen and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. It is all true. Revelation chapter 19 takes place uh, in that, that, that final time, the, the end times. And, and uh, I'm not going to go into a lengthy explanation. If you want more explanation about the end times, join us on Wednesday nights as we're studying through the book of Daniel uh, there. But there is a day coming, and it could be today. There's nothing else that needs to happen for the rapture to take place and where God's saints, God's church, uh, here on this earth is taken off of this earth. The Bible says that after that rapture, there will come a time of tribulation on this earth that the world has never seen before. And then at the end of that tribulation, there is the return of the king when, when King Jesus returns and take, makes everything right. Matter of fact, that's what happens at the end of chapter 19. And so before that takes place, there is this marriage supper of the Lamb. At some time during that tribulation time while all these things are going on here on this earth the bride of Christ the church will enjoy this marriage supper of the lamb now why do we call it supper why do we why do we call it what what's so important about this this marriage supper of the lamb why is God describing it in in this way his his meeting his celebration that he'll take place uh, with the groom Jesus and with the bride the church well it's all based upon the the uh, in the first century and even before then the Jewish wedding celebration that how over time had had progressed into these trends uh, these traditions and everything because uh, when Jesus when he was here when he oftentimes when he talked about the second coming when he talked about that time when he would return. He often used uh, analogies from a wedding, from the, the Jewish wedding and how they did things at that time. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, when a wedding took place, it's different, far different than what we do today. It all started with the, the proposal, but oftentimes the proposal wasn't necessarily between the, the groom and the bride. It was between the parents of the groom and the parents of the bride. Oftentimes they were arranged, but, but it was always good that the bride and the groom wanted to be together too. And so but in, in this instance, when we're talking about the marriage supper, the bride and groom do want to uh, be together. But this, uh, uh, this wedding, uh, this uh, marriage was arranged, it was taken care of, and there was that time when they would enter into the betrothal period after the proposal there would be a purchase that needed to be made the groom had to pay for his bride he had to pay the parents of the bride for the opportunity to 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 marry this this girl he would uh, pay a dowry now they had a, there's a lot of different things it kind of depended on how things were worked out sometimes they would trade livestock sometimes they would trade uh, cows or a herd of cows or something I guess it depended on how how great the wife how smart she was and how good-looking she was if she was a, a ten cow bride or a five cow bride or, or 
maybe she was a, a, a three-goat bride or, or, or maybe she was a, a gerbil bride or something like that. I don't know how that all worked out, but they would arrange. And it wasn't always livestock. I mean, when uh, you remember in the Old Testament in, in Genesis when Jacob, when he wanted to marry Rachel, uh, he had to work it out with her dad, and he was willing to work seven years for her. And then you remember, after seven years, uh, the wedding took place, except it wasn't Rachel, it was her sister Leah. And then he had to work another seven years, so he really thought a lot of her to work 14 years. Uh, that was his dowry that he paid. He worked 14 years before he could ever marry her and have Rachel as his wife. But whatever it was, a purchase was made. Now, oftentimes, that wasn't with, with Jacob. That was back then. But often in, in, in Jesus' day, the way it would work out is that there were, after the purchase, there would be a party. They would, they would immediately go into the wedding. After he paid the price, the groom would leave. He would go to prepare a place for his bride, to prepare a home uh, for his bride. And he would go and he would, would do that. And he'd also probably have to make up for whatever it was he gave and, and uh, you know, to, to raise up a, a herd again or whatever it was. But he'd work on the house and he'd prepare that place. And while he was away preparing a place, the bride would be preparing herself. You know, she'd get her hair colored and she'd get her nails done and she'd do, a, a, uh, she would learn a lot of things that the wife needed to, to have done. But, and not knowing exactly when it was that he would come back for her, she just needed to prepare herself and be ready whenever that day came. And then that day would come. Now they didn't have, they, he couldn't text her or, or send her an email or, or uh, message her on, on, uh, on Instagram or on Twitter or something like that announcing what all he was doing and anything. She wouldn't know. And the only warning she would have, as brief a warning as it was, is that whenever he had everything ready, he'd get all his family together and he would go and he would send a herald out ahead of him and maybe just, just minutes or, or, or 30 minutes or maybe a little bit longer than that, the herald would, would get close enough to, the, to her home, to the bride's home, that he would announce, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And that's, they just had just a few minutes to get ready because here comes the wedding party. Here they come. They're, they're, they're on their way. Now, we don't know exactly that's what they would say, but according to Matthew 25, 6, that's what it said when Jesus talked about the analogy then. And then once the groom got there, then they would have this wedding celebration. And we see it described here in chapter 19 as well. Now, if you know much about the Bible and about the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the book of Revelation and 1 Thessalonians and other places as well, you already see the, the similarities between that and the second coming of Christ. The fact that he, that he came to us and the fact that Jesus paid a price for his bride, the church. He gave his life for her. And not only that, but we also read in, in the Gospel of John that Jesus went to prepare a place for us. And he said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. He was using this wedding analogy here. And let me tell you, when that happens, there's going to be a celebration. There's going to be a party like you have never experienced in your life. And we will all say Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. So here is this marriage supper of the Lamb, this celebration that takes place when finally the bride is prepared and ready and the groom receives her to himself. And we will all gather around that table with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when I say we all, all who have put their faith in Jesus. You see, you put your faith in someone else, you don't get to gather at Jesus' table. Not because he wants to exclude you, but because you have excluded yourself. You put your faith in the wrong Messiah. You put your faith in the wrong God. You put your faith in the wrong thing. The only faith that gets you to this marriage supper of the Lamb is faith in Jesus because it is His supper and He is the groom. And I encourage you, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, please put your faith in Jesus. I want to see you there one day. Because that table is special. That supper table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. First of all, it is a table of grace. It's a table of grace. Look at, look at what it says in verse 9 when he describes this. He doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but he gives enough description when he says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of who? Of the Lamb. The Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Who is this lamb? The lamb is, is Jesus. Well, why didn't it just say Jesus? We are singing earlier about Jesus. There's something about that name. Well, he's showing us that the only way to get to this marriage supper is through the blood of Jesus. He's described as the lamb because the lamb, is, he is the sacrifice. He made the sacrifice for us. He paid the price for our sin through his shed blood and through his sacrifice on the cross. You see, his grace is our admittance to the worship supper of the Lamb. That's the ticket, is his grace, the fact that he sacrificed for us. You see, we're invited. Listen to it. We're invited, but we're not guests. We're, we're the bride. <laughs> we're, that's the beautiful thing. And he paid his price, to, the price to purchase us as his bride. And the groom is the lamb. The lamb that was a sacrifice for our sins. The lamb that paid the price for every one of our sins. And that is how we, we get to this marriage supper. The price that he paid was his shed blood. It was his death on the cross. That's why when we get there, it's all about him. It's not about me. He's the one that paid the price for us. His grace is our admittance. And by the way, his grace is his glory. When it talks about glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, the reason it belongs to him, listen, it belongs to him because he is the only God. He is the only one that is seated on the throne. But the one that is seated on the throne is the Lamb. The one that paid the price for us. See, there are many gods that are little g gods out there. There are many religions that are out there, and they have their own gods. And the thing about these other gods, some of them are mean, some of them are powerful, some of them are in control, or they say they're in control, but there is only one God who is a God of grace, and that is Jesus Christ. There's only one God 
that came and took the pl- our place and paid the price for our sins. And there's only one God, period. He's the one that's on the throne. He's the one that is in control. There are not other gods that are in control. He's the one that is in control, and he is a God of grace. And when we get there, this table of grace, this God of grace will be showing off his bride, the one he paid the price for, the one he redeemed, the one he cleansed and changed you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's amazing how many times in Revelation when it describes Jesus, how often he's described as the Lamb. The Lamb. Who's worthy to open the scrolls? Only the Lamb. Why does it describe him in, in these heavenly scenes as, as the Lamb? I think what that means is, is when we get to heaven... We will see Jesus in all his glory. But what did I say is his glory? It's his grace that's his glory. And I think every time we see him, we'll see the scars. We'll see the scars. When we gather at the table with him, we'll see the wounds, we'll see the scars that he bears for us. And we will know that that table is a table of grace. It's a table of grace. Not only is it a table of grace, but it's also a table of provision. A provision. Look back in verse 9. And notice he says, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, supper means provision. But notice he uses the word blessed. And we say, well, that's obvious. We're, we're blessed. But what it means by blessed is that when we get there, we will have all we need. A-L-L, all. Nothing that we need will be lacking. See, that's what the word blessed means. The word that's translated blessed actually means to be satisfied. Our hunger will be satisfied. We will have what we, what we truly want, what our hungry soul has desired all our life. At that time, we'll be fully satisfied. We'll have everything that we need. I don't know if that means like that we'll never be hungry, uh, that we'll have no more hunger because we're with him, or, or maybe we'll have a hunger, but every day of eternity it'll be satisfied. Every day that we're with him, every moment that we're with him, and we won't need to ever be apart from him. We will never be apart from him. That'll just be a continual satisfaction found in him. Oh, everything we need has been provided. A place has been provided. The place of heaven has been provided. A place at the table has been provided. And everything that has always held us back and that has has left us wanting something, left us thirsty, left us hungry, it'll all be no more. Pain will be no more. Sickness will be no more. Sin will be no more. The devil will be no more. We'll have everything that we need. And not only will all those things be gone, but everything that we need, we'll have more than we need. We'll have more joy, more peace, more satisfaction. We'll be so full, we'll be overflowing. Every second of eternity will be a a second of fullness and satisfaction. Because not only do we have all we need, but he is all we need. He will satisfy us. 
just being in his presence and experiencing his love and hearing his voice. Can you imagine that? You know, now we, we hear in our heart, we hear in our soul the voice of God, but sometimes we're confused. Is that the voice of God or is that my flesh or what is it? There will be no confusion then. We will hear him and only him because all those other voices will have been quieted. He is all we need. You know, we think we know now, but let me tell you something. When we see him, when we're seated at the table with him, wow. Wow. Glory. As he says here four times in Revelation 19, hallelujah, we will be with him, satisfied with him and satisfied by him forever and ever. When I say table of provision, that just doesn't even seem like it's enough. Table of satisfaction, table of, of full fullness, table of hallelujah, you know, table of having everything that we need because he is there. And not only that, but it'll be a table for union, for union with him. That's what is it described as here? He says, right, blessed are those who are called to what? To the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be united with him in spiritual marriage. We will experience everything that he has. What does that mean? That means we will experience his love because he loves us. He loves us. That's what he's talking about with this marriage supper of the Lamb. He loves us. He, listen, it wasn't Paul's decision. It wasn't Isaiah's decision. It wasn't anyone's decision to, to say, i tell you what, how I'll describe the people of God. This is how I'll describe the church. They're kind of like the bride, and Jesus is kind of like the groom. No, Jesus is the one that said it. He's the one that calls us his bride. He's the one that sees us in this way because he's the one that loves us. He wants us with him, him forever. Now listen, I, we want God, don't we? We want to have a relationship with God and it is very comforting to know that he is with us. We need him with us. We want him to be with us, especially in times of hardship, especially in times of pain, especially in times when we're, we're all alone and we don't know what the future holds. We want him to be with us, amen, right? We want him to be with us. But let me tell you something. As much as you want him to be with you, he wants you with him. That's what this is. That's his love for us. I mean, we have nothing to offer him. We're not even worth a gerbil, okay, <laughs> as his bride. We're not even worth a, an earthworm or an ant or, I don't know, a flea. We're not worth any of that. But because he wants that's why, that's what that cross means. God wants us. And knowing that and being with the one who paid the price for us, this hungry soul will be satisfied. He loves us. Not only that, but he cleanses us. It talks back in, in verse 8. It says, 
And to her, the bride, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. That's that idea of cleansing. In other words, he, he uses this word clean, and what the word clean means, it means all impurities have been removed. He cleanses us. We don't have to bring any of this junk with us. It is all left behind. All the uncleanness has been removed. Hallelujah. <laughs> no more sin. No more flesh. Listen, that's, that's what death is about here. We, we view death as a parting. And, and in, in some ways it is. I, I don't want to diminish that because our life is different after you lose a spouse or you lose a child or you lose a parent or lose someone that you care so deeply about. Life is forever different here on this earth. But understand this, for the believer, all death is is shedding that which can't be in heaven and going to be with God in heaven. It's just a shedding of it. And he cleanses us from this old flesh. It's just, when we go to the graveside, that's all we're doing is just saying, this has been shed there with him. There with him. That's what is left behind. He cleanses us. The old flesh is put away. Temptation is put away. The old me is put away. All my failures are put away. All this old thinking, this confusion is put away. Everything that pulls me away from Christ is left behind. I am cleansed completely when I stand before him. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26 and talking about this, it's interesting. This is in the passage where he talks about how wives ought to submit to their husbands and husbands ought to love their wives. And he uses the analogy of Christ and the church there. And in talking about that, he says in, in Ephesians 5, 26, he says that he might sanctify and cleanse her. He's talking about Jesus and his bride. Cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And I don't know about you, but this soul hungers for that day, and one day that hunger will be satisfied. He cleanses us, and then he also clothes us. And not only talks about that clean linen, but it says that we will be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. All unrighteousness, all uncleanness removed, and we will be covered in his righteousness. We will, at that day, we'll have our glorified bodies, and we will see him like he is. And we will think like he thinks. And we'll talk like he talks. And we'll hear like he hears. He will cover us in his righteousness. You say, well, it says here that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Do you understand what the righteous acts of the saints are? They're not all the fleshly things that we've tried to do for God. They are the righteous things that he's done through us. It's not us. 
1 Corinthians makes that clear. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 3 there, he talks about how that all these things that we do in the flesh, even good things we do in the flesh, it's all wood, hay, and straw. And it'll all be burned up. The only thing that lasts is what the Holy Spirit has done through us. That's the righteous act. So now, until that day comes... We need to every day, every moment be yielded to the Holy Spirit to work through us. Every word that we say, every deed that we do, every thought that we think needs to be yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. And let Him work through us. And there's going to be a day when we will be perfectly spiritually united with our groom, our Savior, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. I look forward to that day. And then finally, I know this is what you've been waiting for, a table of celebration. In this passage, four different times, he says, hallelujah. Hallelujah simply means praise the Lord. That's what it means. You know, we say amen, and amen is the idea of I agree with that. I want that to happen. Let it be. But that's kind of got a little more I in it. I don't mind the amens, you know, and stuff, especially when I'm, I'm preaching or something like that, or when you're reading the Word of God. It is good to say amen, to say I want that promise in my life. I want to see that happen. Now, when it talks about the glory of God, to say amen to that. But there's sometimes we don't say amen. We just got to say hallelujah. And, you know, we, we say all the time, and all God's people said, and we all say amen. We probably need to change that when I say all God's people said. You need to say hallelujah. That's what you need to say. All right, you ready? All God's people said? Hallelujah. There you go. That's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. Just, you know, sometimes we're just going to be sitting there looking at him. We'll just go. Hallelujah! <laughs> you know, we're going to be sitting there and we'll see somebody that, that we know, somebody, somebody from Honduras, somebody from Ukraine, somebody uh, from Guatemala, somebody from uh, South Africa and stuff, and they'll be there and they'll be worshiping the Lord and we'll look over there and we'll go, Hallelujah! Not hallelujah for them, but hallelujah to Him. That's the way it will be. Why? We're singing hallelujah to the Savior in verse 1. He says, hallelujah or hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. He is the one that has saved us. Everything has been forgiven. We have been rescued by him. All the old things are no more. We are in heaven with him forever and ever. Everybody that has been saved and been redeemed is there with him. And all we'll say is hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Savior. Hallelujah to the judge. When he says there in verse 18, he talks, says, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. He's talking about the just judgment of God. He is the judge. And let me tell you, this world will one day be judged. This world that condemns Christians, this world that persecutes Christians, this world that, that refuses to, to let us be the, the witnesses that, that God has called us to be or tries to stand in our way and tries to put up all these barriers that ridicules us, that mocks God, that says God does not exist. One day that world will be judged. 
and will stand under the just judgment of God, the Antichrist that will rise to power during the tribulation and will wreak havoc upon this world. He will be judged, the devil, and for all that he has done, one day he'll be thrown into the lake of fire which burns forever, and he will be no more, no more. And as we look at the, as the church of God, when we stand before him, we think, thank goodness we escaped that judgment. Oh, wait, wait. Be careful how you use your words. Because we didn't escape judgment. Judgment was not just done away with for us. Judgment was put upon Jesus for us. Jesus took our judgment. And that's why we say hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah to the faithful one. Verse 4 says, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. So they throw an amen in there with a hallelujah because they're saying everything that has ever been said, everything you read in all these chapters and all these books before the book of Revelation, every bit of it has been fulfilled. God was true in everything that he said. Every prophecy was true. Every promise was true. Every word was true. And so they say amen, hallelujah. He is the faithful one. I mean, we live in this world and everything seems out of control, but it is not ever out of control. God is in control and every bit of this word, every letter of this word, every dot of this word will be fulfilled because he is faithful. He is faithful. And then hallelujah to the Lord of all. Verse 6 says, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters. As a sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He reigns. He is on the throne. And he has always been on the throne. That's what we're calling our study in the book of Daniel on Wednesday night, still on the throne. There's never been a second when he was not on the throne. Even when he was dying on the cross, he was still on the throne. He was still in control. He could have stopped it just like that. But he was in control. And he gave his life. Praise him. Serve him. Honor him. He is worthy because of his position. He is worthy because of his power. No one has the power that he has. And he is worthy because of his purity, because of his love for, uh, for us, because of his holiness and everything he does is right. And he is worthy because of his passion, because he is a God of grace and love for us. So all God's people said, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's keep the hallelujah. How do you keep the hallelujah? Keep your eyes on him. And keep your eyes on the end. Listen, this is not the end. We're just in the middle. Maybe late middle. <laughs> but we're in the middle. The end is coming. And every knee will bow. 
and every tongue will confess he is Lord. This is Doug Ferris, and I'm blessed to be the pastor here at Underwood Baptist Church. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. It's our prayer that you'll do more than listen to the sermon or gather religious information. We want you to encounter God, and we pray that he will impact your life. If you'd like to contact us for any reason, please go to our website at underwoodbaptist.org. All our contact information is there, and we look forward to hearing from you. I hope you are blessed by today's message.